0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Mike Rosart Show, live every week around 7 p.m. Eastern. Today we're actually a minute or two early, which is a rarity. I had a chance to uh, to go live and I thought, hey, let's just do it. You know, I could have, you know, gelled my hair or, or, you know, put on a nicer shirt, but I give you guys the raw, authentic experience. And you guys know I don't sugarcoat things. I'm known to just say what is on my mind, whatever it is. Um, so today's, topic or I guess a video title, I couldn't think of anything better, so I said, you know, what do what do people really want out of the fire movement? Like what's the real point here of all these videos that talk about personal finance? And I think it all boils down to building your version of a dream life. And so I wanna talk about before we get into the nitty gritty QA about, you know, how you do it. Sorry about that. Got a phone call come in. We are live still. Um, (laughs) hey, how you doing, William? Brandon, good to see you guys on. So this idea that, you know, when you're thinking about what your dream life looks like and how you kind of craft that. And it's interesting in my own personal experience, having, you know, quit my job in 2017 and gone through, you know, Jordan-like retirements and then back to work and then retirements and then back to work. Um, I can tell you that it's always evolving. Like the dream life is... You know, you think it's one thing and then it evolves and, you know, maybe you start off thinking, hey, my ideal life is sitting on a beach. And then you realize that, like, you get a sunburn if you're on the beach all day and that's no fun either. And maybe you think it's just like your favorite video games. You think that that's your part of your dream life. And, and you know, maybe it is. But what I've found tends to be is some sort of balance. And at the intersection of, and I find your happy ground there, you will love you will love your life and so part of building the dream life I think is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and starting with like covering your basic physiological needs so your shelter and like a decent shelter um, you know food having good quality food and you know good things to drink and eat and having those positive people in your life and just having a good environment overall now to achieve that and have the time to still do the things that you love to achieve the next tier which is like self-actualization um, I think that you know, there's there's definitely a need for financial independence. It's very, and it happens. There are people I've met in the wild who have found that perfect thing that they do. And they have full autonomy. It's like their own business. And they're doing the work that they love. And they do it on their own schedule. And they're paid well for it. And to those people, fires are not active. And I've gotten DMs from people who are experiencing that. And I guess my only counterpoint to that would be like, what if that changes? What if you go through a recession or... You know, there's a revolution technologically in your industry and, and that changes or maybe you lose a major client. Things can happen, right? And so I still do believe that even if you're living your dream life, even if you've found that perfect way to spend your time, and you're being paid for it. And by the way, like 90% of people, probably higher than that, aren't and don't. So majority of people don't do work that they find completely fulfilling, that they have full autonomy and control over and that they're good at and they find is adding value to the world. And it's very subjective. Like not only do you have to be good at that thing that you're doing with your, your time and your life, like you have to be really good at it, by the way, and you have to believe that you're good at it, but you also have to believe that it's adding value to the world. Like as an example, I'm very good at cost control and managing renovations. It's one of the skill, suits, or one of the skill sets I've developed over the last nine years investing in real estate. No one can manage a project like I could. When I look at my full attention, I can keep costs very low. I can grind the trades down. That was something I was really good at doing. I hate doing it and I feel awful. I feel awful fighting with a trades guy over $200 for like a plumbing fix versus 300 bucks. I can do it, I can grind them down, I'm good at doing that. I'll go find five trades till one of them gives me the price that I want, right? And I was good at doing that, but I don't do it anymore because I hate it. Same as placing tenants, I was very good at placing tenants, but I hate it, that's why I've outsourced it. I, I would spend hours thinking about, you know, which is the right tenant for this property and I was very, uh, I would scrutinize very well. So you might say I had mastery over doing that task of, you know, burying properties. But it wasn't enjoyable. I would wake up and like be fatigued from the day before from doing like renovations and managing it all. And I'd wake up with a dozen texts and it's stressful. I was good at it and I made a lot of money doing it. But it wasn't the dream life, right? And so some people will find that crafting the fire plan that involves real estate investing, they might find that if it's you know, if they have to actively put in time and deal with the stress and the management, it's not the dream life. And so I'm here to be that sober Uh, voice of reality for those people who are planning the dream life that even I thought having, you know, rental property portfolio was like early retirement. That's like the, that's the dream. And I mean, it's a level up for sure from the nine to five shackles for sure. It's better than that. But there are levels of financial independence that once you reach a level of financial independence where you're, uh, you know, you're sort of not no longer chained to having to work anymore and you're working for yourself or you're managing your, you know, your real estate portfolio or, or your stock portfolio if you're actively trading, that's still like a job and if you don't love it or you fall out of love with it you need to be prepared to pivot and so that's what I was talking about today and um I don't know it's interesting how how that evolution happens and how the change occurs in your mind and and then you have to sort of pivot and and move with that so a good fire plan is one that is very fluid very you know dynamic one that changes often so it's finding that and that's the challenge and even now I go through you know, midlife or I guess early life crisis, quarter century life crisis where you're like, what am I meant to be doing on this planet? And, and what is that thing that I'm supposed to be doing? And, and I don't know, I search for it every day. Um, let's get into the questions here because I see a bunch of them popping up, all the regulars popping on. William, how you doing? Good to hear that you're listening. Happy Wednesday. Hey Brandon, hey Seema, Quinton. I am well, thank you for asking. Garrett says, uh, if you inherited 40K, what would you do in hopes of keeping it growing? It's a great question. So yeah, if you come into a a windfall like that um, or whoever you come into money, even if you've just, you know, you've earned it and you sold the property, whatever. Whoever you come into money, um, how do you keep it going? So the biggest thing is not losing that money, right? So you don't wanna take any crazy, outlandish uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency type investments that have a high probability of complete loss or a huge amount of loss, right? The number one rule in investing is to not lose the principal. Right. So that's, that's where I would start with that question is think about what could I invest in? that would have the lowest amount of managed risk and the highest amount of reward because every investment you make has a level of risk and a level of reward. Hell, you give your money to the government for in treasury bills, you put your money in your savings account at the bank, you put them under your mattress. There's still a level of risk. There's always a chance you can lose the money. So there's no guaranteed investment ever. The bank could fail the government could fail the insurance company could fail someone could break into your house right there's always a chance of loss so people say I want the safest I want to never lose money that's impossible even if you're holding on to cash it's degrading at 2% a year on the basically due to inflation right so you're losing 2% even if you're holding on cash and that's if no one robs you right so you're losing no matter what so you have to invest your money so you stop losing because holding on to it in cash it's sitting in your bank account earning no money that's you know it's a lost position and there's a level of risk there too now that's the lowest amount of risk I would argue. There's also um, no return with holding under your mattress in cash or keeping in your bank account um, or just in like terrible treasury bill type bond government bond investments that pay very poorly. You're barely beating inflation. In most of those cases, you're losing to inflation. So that's not a good prospect for the forty grand. If it's in your bank account, you know that's probably not a great place for it to be, unless of course you're on. You, know, you have a plan where in three months from now, you're going to be investing it in something and you need the liquidity for that investment, in which case you have to bite the bullet and lose the inflation for three months and sacrifice some return now for more return later. But yeah, great question. What do you do with it? So there are lots of options, right? You could go out and you could set up like a, a self-trading uh, brokerage account where you're self-directed or self-trading um, and you open that self-directed account and you can go buy exchange-traded funds or ETFs. Most of the major banks, They, you know, they go on there and they, uh, they'll peddle you, you know, whatever. They'll build any fund for you. You want at like a 1% management fee basically built into your return. So when you buy it, it's trades like a stock. You buy an ETF, it could hold hundreds of different stocks inside of it. It's like a mutual fund, but a cheaper management expense ratio. That's what I recommend if you're going to just get into stocks. So that's a great place to park your money. You'll get a, on average, six to 8% return over a 10 year period every single year. So your money will double every you know, the rule of 72, it'll double every seven years. So every seven years, if you leave the money invested in ETF portfolios diversified, you will double every seven years on average, right? Like that's typically what on No one calls me all day until I go on the live show. and like, my phone's wrong like four times. People just like calling me constantly during the live show. And it's like the one time when I'm like, hey, don't call me, but people do it anyway. Uh, and it's funny, the people who call me know not to call me and they do anyway. So sorry for that quick pause there. Lost my train of thought. Oh, investing your money so there's the stock option which is a great one hey future Whiz. hey everyone I see you guys jump in there good to see you even if it's not on here thanks appreciate that Jimmy we'll uh, we'll see you soon and then yeah there's some other questions here I'll get to those in a sec so I'm gonna keep tackling this investing question and, and kind of how you might park that 40 grand with the I guess the thought being you want to grow it but you also don't want to lose your money so in my opinion, if you have any expertise at all, the next place I go after like a stock portfolio is real estate, because I like leverage. So if you could take that 40 grand and you could buy a $200,000 asset, like for instance, real estate you could buy a property. Uh, you could get the bank to give you $160,000 mortgage. You put up 20% down payment or $40,000 and boom, now you own a $200,000 real estate asset and you only have to put 40 grand up. So that'd be a great way to invest it as well, depending on the market that you live in. Like if you live in LA or New York or Vancouver or Toronto, it's gonna be very hard to park your 40 grand anywhere, except, and by the way, I've been getting some questions about this recently, pre-develop or pre-build condos are a great way to get investing for a little bit of money. There's often deals, and I see them pop up, we're like 2% down or 5% down to the end of this pre-build. And in two years from now, it'll be built. So you put up a small amount of money and now you have an option contract. You have to obviously close on in 2 years for this this condo property. And if if you could buy the right kind of condo that could maybe be slightly positive cash flow in Toronto, they exist in the major cities, they do exist. You might find like a one or two bedroom condo that can cash flow slightly positive. It's not a good thing to hold on to long term, but if you could get, you know, a $500,000 asset for $20,000 down, you now control all that appreciation for the next 2 years before it's built. There's no carrying costs. Because all you do is put a deposit up. They're going to build this high-rise over the next two years. And by the time you're ready to take occupancy, you sell the paper. You sell the right to buy that there. assignment of purchase and sale. And in almost all cases, it'll have appreciated in two years. So you get a little upside that way. Um, if you decide to close on it, you still have that upside as well. So that's kind of a cool way to get investing in the real estate for not a lot of money down. And there's no, like, no large fee structure or carrying costs for all that appreciation you're going to get on that condo potentially, right? And worst case scenario, the market doesn't appreciate You just sell it off for what you got it for and what you bought it for. And then, you know, whatever you recoup your investment. So there's not a lot of downside. There's just a a bunch of upside for a little bit of money down, right? You can imagine a $500,000 condo appreciates 5% and 5% over two years. That's a 10% appreciation and boom, 10% appreciation on 500 grand is $50,000. If you only had to put $10,000 deposit to hold that contract, you just made 500% on your money. You put $10,000 down, you're getting 60 back, your 10,000 deposit, plus 50 grand in profit if you sell the contract. Um, basically, it's called an assignment of contract. You would assign it to someone else. And most agents, if you contact some real estate agents, they'd be able to help you assign that pretty easily. You could also do it privately as well. So that's an option for that small sum of money. Um, other things, private lending, another great way to invest the money. Let's just say you could find someone looking to you know get a second mortgage on their house. Maybe they needed $40,000 to do a renovation on their house. They want to put a pool in or... They wanna build a garage or something, right? And they might have a lot of equity in their house. Their first mortgage, maybe they can't qualify for another mortgage at the bank. So you find someone through a mortgage broker or you go on through private channels and find someone. Through a mortgage broker, they're gonna take a little fee but they'll charge it to the borrower anyway. So you as the lender, don't pay it. Um, but they would find that. And let's say this person needs, you know, 40 grand, you would secure up, you get an appraisal of the property done. You might go and say, hey, property is worth 400. I'm willing to make sure that all mortgages on the property are not more than 310. So then there's still $90,000 of equity in the property that it has to basically fall before you've lost a dollar. So I would say that that's really good managed risk. If you're lending 75%, 80% loan to value, in the event that they don't pay the debt back, you can take the asset and you're, you're covered, right? They have to lose, there has to be a 90 grand drop, That's be a 20% drop in real estate prices before you've lost a dollar. So that's a relatively safe investment. Compare that to buying a property. Your down payment is, is the last 20%. The bank gets paid back first. So it's actually more risky to put your money in a down payment than it is to do private lending. And I tried to make that argument with someone over Instagram the other day, and they, they were just having a hard time understanding that. So now that I'm in this rabbit hole, I'm gonna just flesh this out or, or flesh it out for you guys to see. It's this idea that people think their money is safe in real estate, your money is the first to be lost. Your down payment in real estate, let's say prices drop 20%, your entire down payment's gone. The bank's getting their 80% loan to value paid back, right? In most cases, that's what an average mortgage is. And your down payment's gone. But if you're a lender, and you've lent from 60% to 80% loan to value, the price dropped 20%, the owner of the house loses their 20% down payment, but your money's secure, you're safe. Even the event of a real estate crash of 10, 20%, which is catastrophic, like a 20% drop in real estate prices and a major metropolitan in Canada is catastrophic, we've never seen that. Um, Even the worst of the late 80s and early 90s in Toronto where things were hit pretty hard, we we never saw that. Like flat or down a couple of percentage is typically what we see and there are reasons why the government would stimulate the economy if more than a 10% drop happened in real estate. So I believe prices in real estate won't drop more than 20%. I bet my money on that, I think it's a managed risk. So that's where I kind of feel safe in private lending. But that's a great space to be in too. Imagine you could do that second mortgage, you could on that hypothetical investment question, take your 40 grand and lend it out and make 400 bucks a month. You know That's kind of a best case sort of scenario if you're managing your risk. And so 1% a month return, 12% annual, is probably like a really good return if you went hunted for you know, someone to lend a second mortgage to. So, and it's easier to do with a small sum of capital than a large sum of capital actually. People think that it, you know, being a private lender is easier with more capital. It's actually a lot harder the more capital you have uh, because you're trying to deploy this little amount of capital to people and there's periods where they pay you back and you can't deploy it out again. And so it'll be, you might get a 12% return for 10 months and then someone pays you back and it takes you a month and a half to then fund another deal. So you find someone who's got a deal closing in 30 days and it takes, you know, maybe they get an extension of closing. So there's 45 days where you have that cash in your account making no money. And so with a lot of money, it's actually harder to do private lending and get those great returns. But With 40 grand, you could easily find someone who would take that money and and keep it, right? So it's easier to deploy actually small amounts of money in private lending, contrary to popular belief. So that's another option too, where you can make 400 bucks a month in passive income from your 40 grand. And yeah, you're not growing it more than $400 a month. There's no appreciation with that lending contract, but you are getting passive income. And so I think the... You know, the building phase of building wealth, I really like the idea of real estate, levered real estate and buying businesses and things like that to really grow your wealth. Once you've built a level of wealth, the dream life often isn't, you know, managing tenants and managing contractors and dealing with all the stress involved with real estate, even managing your managers. It's more like the private lending realm. So I think that's sort of an end game. And I see a lot of people who I talk to who are millionaires shift their wealth from the active grind where they're actively investing their time and energy and skill set into getting a higher return on their money to then you know pulling back their time and still have their money invested in more passive um, means of growth but again it depends on your age and your lifestyle what do you do for a living there's so many factors that come into play with how you're going to invest and it depends on again so many factors like what what is your skill set maybe you're handy you can fix up a house yourself then maybe buying a property would be a you know almost a like a straight easy solution to that problem of where to put your money okay so that was a great question thank you for asking it next question uh, it says hey my crazy weather today yeah it's been it's been wild here in in London we had heat and then we had a lightning um, storm brew up so yeah it's been we've had geez it's been over hundred so 32 33 Celsius super super hot here in in uh, in Southwestern Ontario for sure. It's been uh, kind of nice actually though. I've enjoyed the heat. Extreme Clean says, are you doing coaching? Yeah, sometimes I do coaching. It, if I'm on the phone like more than an hour a day doing coaching, I just find that, and honestly like an hour a week is even, I don't like to do a lot of coaching to be honest, but I do do, the, I do, do coaching. Like I have a mentorship program that's free. I don't charge for it, um, but it's full-time live in, right? and I do a lot of coaching through there. I do do the occasional coaching call here and there um, on one off basis basically. I don't have a courses that I sell or any coaching that I do and it's not because it isn't a good business idea. It's a great business idea. It's one of the highest profit margins. It's very scalable, but um, just don't have the desire right now for that. Maybe someday if I write a book, then I would create a course or something to go with that book or I don't know. It's on the idea board of things that I could do with my time I just haven't found a, a need to carve out that time to, to do that. And money isn't a primary driver for me anymore. And so, yeah, do I do coaching on occasion? Do you enjoy being a realtor? Do you think it's a good career for work life balance? Or is it always going to be long days and always on call your whole life? Quentin Green, great question, Quentin. And by the way, great to see you on again. It's been a long time since you know, I feel like I've, you've had a question on here. I do appreciate that you've been following for you know, well over a year. Uh, Quentin, you know, it's tough. I, I'm not really a realtor. Like I am a realtor, but I don't work as a real estate agent in the same way that um, most real estate agents work, right? You guys know that I pretty much just service myself. I'm like my own, only client. Sometimes I'll help the mentees or like close friends find properties, right? But it's a job. Um, it's a, it can be a very good paying sales job. And if you're a trusted advisor for the person, and a real estate agent can be a really good trusted advisor. There are some agents who go the length of like helping to manage renovations or place tenants, and they really add a ton of value in putting a deal together for their client. But you're right, the amount of time, you kind of made alluded to the point that, are you always on call? Yes, that is the rule of the agent. When the client wants to buy, you have gotta be ready to chase. And when they have a deal, it could take six hours between, you know, negotiating and talking to their agent and then back and forth and running a paperwork up. It could take a long time to get a deal done. And so yes, you might make five thousand dollars in commission on one deal. And yeah, it might take you like six hours in negotiation and four hours in showings and you know maybe six hours in like setting appraisals up and getting it to the closing point. And that's good priority. Maybe fifty bucks an hour or a hundred bucks an hour or more. But you'll often do 10 showings in a row and make no money, right? For a client that never ends up buying or a client that goes through 30 properties to buy. And so being an agent can be a great, I think it's a great entry level learning to be a real estate investor career. And so you do learn a lot. You're exposed to a lot of different properties. You're exposed to a lot of different problems and situations in real estate that you have to learn how to solve. And as a real estate agent, when you get to your own properties, you have that leverage, that experience, that network, of lenders and investors that you can sell properties to later, or you know, connect to contractors. So it's a huge leg up. If you want to become a real estate investor and that's your path to financial independence. But once you're fired, you don't want to be a realtor. Like being a realtor is a job. A really good agent makes 200 grand a year, but it's a job. They're working for 200 grand a year. It's a high paid sales job. So if you don't want a job, then you don't, I guess, don't be a realtor, right? It can be a great way to get to fire, but I think once you're fired, most agents, if they had unlimited you know, income, they wouldn't want to be doing um, being a real estate agent, right? There's lots of pieces of it that are not desirable, though you could do kind of how I do and have like an assistant who does a lot of the paperwork. You could optimize and streamline a lot of it so that you'd be in a position of um, basically where you'd like just doing the things that you love, right? Maybe it's just like showing properties or looking at properties. One of the things that I do, and this is the question I ask myself when I'm thinking, what is my hobby? What do you do when you're not being paid for it? Like, what do you do just for fun? And honestly, when I'm like, at the end of the night, when I'm just tired of doing work, I'll just go on like realtor.ca or run my matrix system and look at expired listings or look at properties that are for sale. That's just me. Like, I just enjoy looking at like luxury real estate and just like the architecture and the design of properties. That's just who I am. That's just what I like to do. Now, if you ask me to do that as a career, I would not want to go show wealthy people, luxury homes. That sounds like a job. But the part that I love, the hobby, is like just going to showings and checking the properties out and even looking for myself and that sort of thing. So I do enjoy pieces of it. And so I could say if it's your hobby and you you're like me, then it would be a job that you'd actually enjoy. Like as far as jobs go, realtor is a great job. If I had to go back and I lost all my money and I had to start again, realtor would be definitely the way I would go because of my skill set and because of my passions it aligns pretty well. Like I can make 200 grand a year as an agent. That's a great paying job to building fire again, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's way better than the IT job that I had. It's way better than working at like, you know, in accounting or the other jobs that I've had at large companies. I hated those compared to being a realtor. It's much more free. You are an entrepreneur. You get to set your own hours. Sure, there are huge advantages to being a realtor. If you're not doing a lot of deals though, it doesn't make sense to become a realtor. So, If you're just doing it for yourself, unless you have a huge portfolio, it just doesn't make sense. And even then you could probably work out a deal with an agent where they gave you cash back when you bought and they negotiate a really good deal to co-list when you sell. Um, Yeah, it depends what you value your time at per hour. Next question. Lavar says, what type of house structure problems would you stay away from when buying a property? It's a good question. Um, Ones I like the least are roof leaks and foundation. Structural issues, foundations are really, really expensive to fix. So it's tough when you have a finished basement to see. Sometimes you get surprised and it looks it's all been parched outside, so it looks good, and then you get inside and the foundation's not great because it's all finished and you can't see it. So sometimes it's inevitable and the home inspector can't. There's no way to prevent it. So that's when I try to shy away from. But at the right price, there's nothing I won't touch. Um, and then roof leaks are one that I kind of get afraid of too, only because not afraid of like I can. I've tackled so many roof leak problems. It's just that every time I do, or not every time, but like seven out of 10 times, let's say the majority of the time, when you get into a roof leak issue, there's like mold, there's more than you think that there is. And it ends up becoming a bigger job than what you initially thought because all the insulation is no good unless it's spray foam. But if it's like fiberglass or cellulose, that insulation's no good because it's all wet. And then you got to like redo the vapor barrier and you got to redo the drywall. And potentially there's some like reframing you might have to do. If there's some rot you got to cut out or, you know, ply would get a replace before you fix the roof. So it depends on how extensive the leaking and the damage is, but that would be the two that I try to avoid. Everything else is like a cheap, easy fix. Honestly, people get afraid of like little like cracks and bricks and stuff like that. I've even seen like foundation cracking that isn't leaking, that isn't extensive. And it looks scary, but, or even sometimes like they'll be parging, it's all broken off the side of like a, a foundation and it'll have worn away maybe an inch in, but you got like a nine inch, you know, concrete foundation poured. And so like an inch of wear is no big deal. You can just patch that up really easily, right? And so that kind of stuff doesn't scare me at all. It's the really scary, you know, roof leaks and foundation stuff that I try to avoid. Mostly because the time it takes to get it fixed. Like I do a lot of management to get that fixed properly, right? And so for me, it's just the time suck. I've been through it. I've done projects like that where they've just been terrible roofs and stuff like that. And I've had a foundation collapse even. Um, Mostly the contractor was negligent in this one occasion, but um, I've had it all. Like, we literally are re-pouring, like, we've been, I've been through it all. As an investor, I've come across pretty much every terrible thing you can have happen in a property. And so, yeah, I mean, it's easier to buy the turnkey deals that just need cosmetic work. And I think for your first five properties, you should just do that. Vicken says, hey, hey, how's it going? Welcome on. Garrett says, I agree with what I've learned from you. I want that beach life. I want my house paid off in full. That's probably a mistake. Uh, I'm okay with renting on a lake shore. I'm even okay with part-time work as a barber. I'm just done working for someone who tells me when to work. There you go. So that's, you're wanting to elevate in the ladder of freedom. And I think once you get enough wealth that, you know, you, once your time becomes worth $100 or $200 an hour, it might not make sense to even be a barber unless you just love cutting and styling hair. But um, yeah, definitely the next level, working for yourself, not for someone else, that is a definitely higher degree of freedom than working for someone else. So you want to elevate up the ladder and eventually get to the top and you're like, I don't even want to like work for myself anymore. I don't even want to have clients. I just want to fire off the clients because they're, they're, again, they feel like a boss. You work for the client, right? And so yeah, different degrees of freedom. I think you'll, you'll find what fits for you and, and for your personality. But the one piece out of that that I didn't like, um, I, I think you'll find that the beach life is great for a little while and then you want to mix it up and change it up. You'll need something to keep yourself engaged. The second piece was the house paid off in full. I think that's a mistake. Um, I can't see an argument for the house being paid off that makes any sense for anyone under the age of like seventy. Um, you can go borrow. And we should refinance your house and pull out eighty percent loan to value at like two and a half percent right now. Put that money in anything: private land, buy real estate, invest in a business, whatever. Buy stocks. Anything. You can go buy blue chip stocks that pay a six. Like bank. Stocks in Canada, like Bank of Montreal, TD, RBC, you know, CIBC, whatever, HSBC, all the guys, they all pay dividends of like five and 6% and you get a capital appreciation. They've been beat up a lot because of COVID, right? So you could buy stocks like that as an example. I'm not recommending those plays, but just like picking an example to make a point. You could borrow from your mortgage at two and a half percent. Take the money out of your house because you don't want to pay your house off. Go and invest that, right? and get a 5% dividend, or you can do private lending at 10% and get double that. But let, let's just say for easy math, 10% with private lending. 10% and your mortgage is costing you 2.5% interest. You're making 7.5% on the money. Let's say you get a $300,000 mortgage, 300 grand invested at 10% is 30 grand a year in interest income. Your mortgage is not 30 grand a year. You'd be further ahead investing the money and having the profit from the money invested pay your mortgage for you. Either way, your are mortgage payment free. I'm all for mortgage payment free. I've been mortgage payment free for nine years now, but I will always have a mortgage balance. That's the differentiator. You want to be mortgage payment free. You don't want to be mortgage free. You want a mortgage. You just want to take that money, you want to invest it somewhere and have that investment, pay your mortgage and put money in your pocket. The next question. Hey Alex, how you doing? Hey John, how you doing? Ilya says, what's your thoughts on Owen sound? It's more of an elderly community. Um, one sounds all right. I, I have a friend who, who's a large investor there. If you guys follow John Kepler, he's, he's the guy to talk to in, in that area. Um, yeah, I don't know a ton about the community. There is an aging community there. Um, COVID's not been, been kind to the aging population. So that's something to think about during this time specifically. Maybe there's an opportunity there or, or something. Um, Yeah, you just have to, I guess you could play like the senior housing move. Um, Yeah, I don't know a ton about the market. I I can't tell you, like it's a small town, right? So what you'd have there versus Toronto or say like London would be lower appreciation, should be lower appreciation because market fundamentals aren't as good. Now, reality reflects that there's been a ton of appreciation there. Maybe it's overvalued based on market fundamentals. I don't know. Um, I suspect it is a little bit overvalued. A lot of the smaller communities here in southwestern Ontario are overvalued based on the market fundamentals that they have. Um, but there are trends, like people are moving further out from the city and they're working from home. So if the infrastructure can hold it and there's, you know, sufficient internet infrastructure there, et cetera, I could see those smaller towns, you know, doing well long-term, especially if they're within a close proximity to a larger town. Um, but yeah, that's sort of my advice on that if the cash flow is good, if you're getting one and a half, two 2% rule or some really good cash flow and it can make a lot of sense. Garrett says I thought about a second home. There you go. You can buy a second home and turn into an investment property and cash flow positive. Hello future says, what do you think about student rentals after COVID? What do you think buying a six unit apartment building is better or buying student rentals? Hello future. I am bullish on, um, buying anything that's under market value today. So, if a student rental because of COVID is now trading at a 20% discount, it could be an opportunity, but you're right at market value, paying full retail price, student rentals are going to get hammered. A lot of the international students can't come back to 2021. Half of the programs have gone online. A lot of the programs are 50 50 online and in class. So the need for people to have student housing is greatly reduced, especially in a city like London, Ontario, that a quarter of our population is a student at Fanshawe Western, right? So That's huge when 25% of your population is gone or let's say half the students don't come back. So 12 and a half percent of your population is gone. That's a lot of available units and rooms for rent and and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to affect the entire rental market here. And so my hypothesis is when all this stimulus money, these billions and billions of dollars are being injected in stimulus into the economy and these low interest rates that are artificially low right now, because they're trying to prop up the economy, right? The government has lowered interest rates and they've dumped a ton of money into the economy. So that's a huge boon for real estate, right? Like real estate is artificially high right now. And there's trends like people are able to work from home now. So they're moving outside of the city. So that's a trend for people to sell their house and you know, upsize or whatever, and whatever and buy more outside the city. So there's just a, a trend right now for London, Ontario specifically, where I think the market is artificially higher than it should be. That to me is a sign to sell, not to buy. So unless, and, and I'm still buying too. I People bring me deals and I'll take them down, right? But. I'm only interested in buying deals that are strongly cash flow positive and that I can burn, pull my money out. So those are the deals I'm most attracted to right now. Everything else, I'm like, I'm barely even looking on MLS for rental properties. That's how bad it is right now. And I have eight properties listed for sale right now on MLS. So I'm I'm pro dumping some properties off. I think this is in the fall or next year. Everything's gonna catch up and all the stimulus, money's gonna end, interest rates are gonna go back up when the economy catches up, interest rates will rise again. And there won't be that strength in the real estate market that there is right now. A lot of it's artificial. It's my thoughts. It doesn't mean you shouldn't buy real estate. It doesn't mean you can't still do it. You can't still burn. You can just be cautious. Uh, so I guess the last part of your question was the six unit first, the student rental. And I think again, depends on the numbers, but I think you'll have an easier time renting the six unit than the student rental right now. So that might make it a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, long term, I think it'll come back and it could be okay. Like a year or two from now, three years from now, it'll probably be fine. Student rentals will probably come back. Um, but yeah, it depends on location too. If you're in a premium student rental location, your student rental will probably do well, even with half the population there, right? You might have to drop your price per bedroom because when a thousand new units come on the market that were rented to students before, um, they're competing now with the families. So your sixplex is competing with the student rental down the street, and they're both. He just drops his price a hundred bucks for his one bedroom apartment. You gotta drop your price too, to compete, right? Next one, uh, hey. Is there a way around the 5% rule? Do I oft live in the property if I only put 5% down? Uh, is there a way around the 5%? I don't know what the 5% rule is. Um, specifically, you're talking about the 5% rule. So, 5% down, da- I think you mean 5% down. So it's in the same question. So I'm just gonna assume the second part of the question is, um, oh, you're thinking talking about rent versus buy maybe? So do you have to live in the property if you put 5% down? Yes, um, I don't believe you can buy a rental property. I'm not sure on that actually, uh, don't quote me on that. You might be able to buy a rental property with 5% down. I know people who have done it, but then those people were friends of mine that might have said they were gonna live in it and then change their mind. So you could maybe do 5% down, live in it for a year and then, or six months and change your mind and then install the property at 5% down. But the problem with buying at 5% down is again, the private mortgage insurance is like a three, 4% fee. So you lose most of your down payment. So that's something to think about too. Next question. What are your thoughts on velocity banking, paying off mortgage lump sum with line of credit? Uh, Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Smith maneuver. So Smith maneuver is the idea that you take your primary residence, you turn it into a HELOC or a line of credit, and then every time you take Basically every time you buy an investment property or you invest in stocks, you take the money from your home equity line of credit and now your mortgage interest is all tax deductible against that investment that you made. Whereas if you just had a mortgage on your house and it wasn't the funds weren't used to invest, then you wouldn't be able to, or you couldn't trace directly that the funds were used um, to invest, then you couldn't write off the mortgage interest on your house. So that's uh, something to think about. I like lines of credits against your house because now your mortgage interest on your house here in Canada then becomes tax deductible against that investment. Uh, But paying off your mortgage early, I'm not a big fan of. I would like to always have that available credit, that home equity line of credit, there on my house. The smart thing to do is actually, home equity lines of credits go 65% loan to value. But if you did a mortgage for 10% loan to value and then a HELOC for 70% loan to value, you get 80% loan to value in total. You need to have a small fixed portion mortgage to get an A lender to give you um, 80% loan to value with a HELOC. So the key piece is that you have a small fixed portion as well. Um, even if your mortgage is like hundred grand or 50 grand or something fixed, and then the rest can be in a HELOC, you actually get more money at your house to invest elsewhere. Hi, Mike, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you for asking. Next question is my son is 16, has $42,000 in savings. That's amazing for a 16 year old. Like he must have a great allowance and you must have him working actively to, to build that up. That's amazing. Uh, it's a huge accomplishment for him. Uh, but you're saying the rate is not good should he put an ETF I don't understand I'm a property person not good though here okay so sounds like the in Australia there's not some, as many opportunities for rental properties that said though I have Australians who follow my YouTube channel and they find cash flowing properties so maybe just keep looking twist your tongue buy a duplex or a triplex or something that you can make cash flow right or buy a student rental maybe you can make cash flow or there must be a way to make a cash flow because people do in Australia but Uh, The part of your question, buying exchange traded funds, you can't, as a 16 year old, you can't buy exchange traded funds. You can't own real estate or stocks when you're under 18. Those stories you see going viral of the kid investing at like 16 or 17 or buying real estate at 16, 17, his parents are buying stocks or real estate and they're holding them in trust for him. That's it. Um, So someone under 18 legally can't own real estate or stocks. But you could take their forty-something thousand dollars, open a brokerage account, and invest for them on their behalf. And you could write it up so that it'd be in trust to them. Um, that's how it's done, um, legally speaking. But yeah, you could definitely put it in an ETF, and you could get a decent return. Um, you could buy a property too, and you guys could work on it together and have that bonding experience. Maybe he's seen you do real estate your whole life. He doesn't want to do it. So maybe stock investing makes more sense. Maybe lending makes more sense. Again, that, the cool thing about lending or going on a like crowdsourced lending site is that he can watch his investment grow using your account, I guess. Um, so that'd be kind of a cool way to get him investing. I'm hoping my daughter is the same way. You know, 10 years from now, I'm hoping that she's interested in investing. I'm thinking these are the ways that I'm going to get her interested in real estate and investing. Next question. Absolutely right. I grew tired of the active ways of doing business and investing, i.e. managing properties or managing tenants, making products or services, any of the business stuff. It just, it becomes work after a while, right? Humans, you know, we get tired when there's no more learning. There's no more growth. I don't grow at all going to land on a tenant board or fighting with a tenant or placing a tenant or talking to a contractor. There's no more growth for me. I've learned as much as I can learn about that topic. It's the same bullshit day in and day out. Excuse my French. Um... Yeah, so you get tired of something, whatever it is, and you want to move on and do something new. Totally, the human condition. Next question was, I uh, definitely enjoy downsizing and de-risking ever since the Great Recession 2008 to date. Get rid of the debt, minimize expenses, thereby enjoying up to 90% of income instead of giving it away. There you go. I think, Brent, you might be a little too de-risked for me, but I can understand the play there being you know, very secure and, and safe, and it feels good to have you know, a lower return, but a lot less risk, right? And no active time management. Brent asks, what are the expenses of being a private lender in the second mortgages that you do? I really like your point about making this work for smaller sums and actually having the least risk via the a down payment. Yeah. So Brent, private lending is actually less risky if you structure it properly than owning real estate. When you own real estate, you put 20% down. And again, you have a chance if the market drops 20%, you've lost your entire investment. The bank's safe because they were secured 80% loan to value. Your down payment's the first to go right so in lending the market has to drop a lot for you to lose money you're way safer lending the money as a second mortgage 80% loan to value than you are putting the money as a down payment now you might not have control but if you're investing smartly in the right people not only do you have security on the property but you can usually go after the person personally as well if you structure things properly and so that's the way I would go about doing it Um, what are the expenses associated with it there is some time investment if you're procuring the leads yourself if you're out there on Facebook and Kijiji and going to networking events and just building a network of people like flippers. And ideally you find flippers and real estate investors as your target. You can lend to like mom and pop too, who just need a second mortgage to you know, put a garage on their house. Look at what they're using the money for. Ideally they're using the money to improve the value of that property you're secured against. That's ideal because now you're 40 grand just to give you another added value of security on your investment. So now the value is not 300, it's 340 because they took your 40 grand and they invested it. maybe they were smart about it and the garage could have been built for 60, but they did it for 40. So they added 60 grand in value to the investment, thereby reducing your risk. Um, But what are the costs? Typically, there's a cost of like, you might want to go out and see the property physically yourself. And so that's like my, let's say, okay, let's just, if I was going to build a lending company, how would I do it? If I was going to build a lending business, first thing I would do is I'd open a corp and I'd lend the money into the corp. I have a set return or I take it off my line of credit. And I lend it into my corp. Now my corp has this, these funds in it. It is a business that is actively trying to find mortgage deals. And it might do consulting too. I might meet with a flipper and I might help them do floor plans. I might go with them and give them ideas at the property. I might walk through it with them when they have their financing condition. And I say, Hey, like I'm going to back this project, 80% loan to value. I'm going to be the mortgage guy. I'll give you a private mortgage. There'll be no break, there'll be low breakout fees or whatever. So for the, the flipper, it's a lot easier. There's no paperwork they have to send in like they do to the bank. There's no back and forth. There's no risk. I'm going to guarantee fund the deal. So it's a win-win for the flipper too. I might go in and provide consulting. So I could charge them a couple thousand dollars in consulting alone just to help them, you know, provide them contacts. And so the, the lender can do more in the lending space than just be the lender. You could also be the strategic partner in some senses. You don't get any equity. You're just a debt, you know, piece, right? But you could be providing extra value in that way, right? Um, you can order an appraisal or you can do the appraisal yourself. I personally wouldn't order an appraisal on a deal in London, Ontario. I would pull my own comps. I don't trust appraisers. I honestly feel like I could do a better job finding, a, like if the if the deal goes sideways and I have to take the property through power of sale, I'm the realtor who has to sell it. So I know what it's going to be worth. And I would look myself and see what it's worth as opposed to getting an appraiser and to do it. So I could, again, I could do the appraisal and charge them a $500 appraisal fee. Again, I could become the appraiser for my own private deals, right? Effectively, I'm, I'm not a licensed appraiser, but I could, I could look and see the value for my own deals that I'm funding, right? And so instead of requiring an appraisal for my private lending and my business, I'm the appraiser on my own deals. And so if I'm going to lend hundred grand out as a second mortgage, I'm going to go check the property out. And so, yeah, that would be one way. Um, So what are your expenses, you asked, is building this business up? There's going to be an injection of time, but if you wanted to outsource things, you could hire an assistant to do the mortgage commitment. So when you decide you're going to fund a deal, you write a commitment letter, right? A mortgage commitment, it'd be a one or two pager. You send it out, they'll sign it saying they're, they're committed. And you might even charge them a deposit of $1,000 if they go to another lender. After you've spent the time now to appraise the property and you've, you know, you've agreed to fund it, you've locked your capital up for their deal. So for the next 20 days till it closes, the money is sitting in your account for them. You can't invest it in anything else. So that'll be like a, usually a lender will take a fee, it'll be a lender fee of 1% of the balance you're lending, typically. So you'll get, if you're lending out 200 grand, you'll take a $2,000 fee plus a $500 appraisal. Plus the borrower will also cover your legal fees. So you'll have a lawyer that will write the documents. They'll have a lawyer that will write the mortgage documents. Your lawyer will secure on title. So you're safe. And so there'll be legal fees associated with that as well. You put that on the borrower and you might charge them 12% for this mortgage. And if they, you know, it's a one year term, let's just say it's a long flip. And it's a one year term. If they pay it out early, they have to pay you two months of interest penalty. So if they pay it out for six months, they pay you eight months of interest. That's how typically how a private lending business would be structured. And it's great because now I'm getting passive income. My business also has expenses. I might have to go out to lunch occasionally. I might have to meet up with, with flippers and do networking. And I might have to do some marketing. I'm have to pay for some Kijiji ads to generate leads. I might actually reach out to mortgage brokers in town and say, Hey, I'll pay you $500. If you have a deal that goes south that they need quick funding in three days close. And so now I'm going to pay a mortgage broker to feed me leads. For good deals. You find a property where they got 40% down, and they just want a 60% mortgage. That's extremely low risk. And if they're willing to pay a 10 to 12% interest rate, I might say, Hey, uh, I'm willing to pay the mortgage broker for connecting us together. So that'd be an expense to the business. You probably have gas expenses. Like there will be expenses to the lending business. Yeah. You might even your best, you know, your best clients that you lend to, you might take them for lunch or give them gift cards. There's a whole bunch of things expense wise that could exist for this said business, but I love lending businesses. I think it's a great way um, I haven't really pursued it actively, but I've been, I've always noodled on doing that and it'd be cool to do it. Uh, I think it'd be a great business to be a pretty good lifestyle business. Cause once your capital is all deployed, you know, you don't have anything to do uh, other than like ensure that the payments come every month. And typically you just do post-dated checks. So there's nothing to do. You just, you have the checks on your phone, you snapshot them into your bank account. Um, so that's like what, two minutes, maybe you have some bookkeeping to write down that you collected the interest. Um, but yeah, when you're trying to fund the deals, there's some active input there. You could just hire a mortgage broker to do all of that for you and lend your capital out for you. He'll take the lender fee. He'll do the appraisal. He'll do all of that. You just go yes or no on the deal. So that's another option too. If you want to outsource completely and do like extremely passive lending, you could do it that way too. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. I like to look at properties. I personally enjoy that process. And so for me, I probably do procure my own deals. I was going to do lending. Again, I might get tired of it. You know, we made that point earlier in the stream tonight that after, you know, doing it for two or three years, it can become monotonous, it can become repetitive. And maybe it makes sense to outsource that too. And if you have enough capital that you're lending out, you could have an employee that you paid 50 grand a year to just procure deals for you and put it all together. And it would still make sense if you're doing enough volume. If you had like a four or $5 million in capital at 12%, that means you're bringing in like, geez, like that's a good good $500,000 a year in income, you could afford to pay 50 grand a year and someone to do it all for you. And you're still making 450 net, right? Where do I find real estate listings? realtor.ca, the MLS. Uh, You can also go on Kijiji Facebook. There's tons of other places you can find for sale by owner, Um, but yeah. Hopefully that answers your question, Brent. We went pretty deep on that lending piece and that's actually a good segment. Someone after this stream is over, should go in the comments and tag the timestamp for this. And it'd be a good one to make a separate video about. Hi, my Happy Wednesday. What do you think about the Smith maneuver? So we talked about the Smith maneuver earlier on in this stream and I love it. I'm a big fan. If you can make your mortgage interest on your house tax deductible by taking the capital and investing against something, that's amazing because in Canada, your mortgage interest is not tax deductible unless you use the funds to invest elsewhere, and you can show that direct trace. Then the mortgage interest from your primary residence is tax deductible against that investment. That is the Smith maneuver. Books for passive income learning, Logan. I don't know. Um, I don't read enough books. I used to have a book list, but I don't keep one current anymore. I probably haven't read a book in a lot. I listen to a lot of, like I'll do like audiobooks sometimes. I read a lot of random articles, I watch YouTube videos, I talk to a lot of people, but I honestly don't do a lot of book reading anymore. So I don't have good recommendations for passive income books. Maybe someone else does in the comments, drop them in, if you have uh, good ideas for books. If you do buy in this market, what's a minimum COC return you're looking for? Uh, COC meaning cash on cash. Um, it depends you know, on so many factors. If I'm buying a deal that has you know, a great appreciation upside and a great location, I'll sacrifice on cash on cash because the location is so good. The tenant quality is premium, et cetera, and so forth. Um, Next would be, I guess if you're in like a C class area, you want a really high cash on cash return, but it just depends so much. I would say less than 15% cash on cash return. I'm not even interested at all in investing. I could just do lending instead and it's much more passive and much more secure than buying a property. There's lower risk lending 80% loan to value than there is buying real estate. Next one here. How I've been following your real estate investing stuff for three years. I'm making a real estate investing move and I refine my single family property. I have no loan on, I bought it in cash and buy a duplex or just sell it and buy a fourplex. That's a good idea to pull the capital out. Very smart. You definitely don't want to have capital trapped in your property. Um, and if you can buy another property, it's going to cash flow. That's really smart, I think. Um, next. Good to see you live. Love your content as always. Thank you, Abby. Appreciate that. Perhaps the rental to market is permanently damaged for students. Oh, I'm going to block the door. So my kids don't come on the camera. Perhaps the rental market is permanently damaged for students. So many courses are moving online via Zoom. Rather than in person, foreign students will save tons of money, including on rent. Brent, that could be true. I think a lot of the students want to come to Canada. And so if they can get it, even if they're half online, they can pick a program that's in class. They probably will do that. So um, yeah, I don't know how much it'll be affected long term. I think long, long term, 23 years from now, yeah, the experience is going to go more virtual. Land plays next year. Michael Chung says, yeah, I mean, potentially. If there's an opportunity, you know, for a land play and... You can buy, like, a nice mansion and sever off the property and then sell the land off. I'm always open to development opportunities, um, you know, where they can make sense. I don't like being a developer personally. It's not my, my thing, but on my primary residence, I'm living there anyway, and there's land play development. I can see it making sense. Good point. Thanks. Hey, no problem. Happy to help. Brent says, wink, wink. Is your love of seeing showing properties just a smart way of seeing amazing mansions for free? <laughs> You know, I think that's probably part of it, but it's just like my long-term goal is to have a mansion. It's on my vision board. And so part of that is like if the right one prop pops up, I might just splurge and find a way to make it work. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I love to just, yeah, see those kind of properties. And as an agent, it isn't free. I mean, my costs me probably five, six grand a year to keep everything alive, right? Um, as an agent and keep all my dues paid and insurance and all that. So there is a cost, but it's a small cost, four or 500 bucks a month to keep my license going. Even if I do no deals in the year to me, that's worth it. Um, but yeah, I can see how that wouldn't be for some people. It's 40 K good amount of money to get into real estate. If you're saving almost all of it, like 95% of it. Um, yeah, I think like it's a good, definitely. It's a good start. Um, to build enough wealth to buy a down payment on a property. And then from there, you could snowball. I assume I'm 21, I live with my family so I can save almost all my income. Yeah, I mean, if you're making 40 grand a year and you're saving all of it, you can invest in stocks, real estate, whatever you want, right? Saving will allow you to build wealth, right? So I recommend you save no matter what. Even if you don't invest in real estate, I recommend that you buy you know, some exchange traded funds, at least with the money that you have, that you are saving and start you know, growing your wealth. Every seven years, money doubles in the stock market. In real estate, it can be even sooner if you buy the right type of properties that cash flow well and appreciate in the right areas. So it's, yeah, I mean, I love real estate and I think that there's no barrier to entry for making 40 grand a year. When I started investing in real estate, I was making 50 grand a year and my wife was making 38 and those were our salaries and we bought properties. So you could totally do it. There's no reason you couldn't. Um, I know people that do it who make 40 grand a year. Yeah, totally. You can make less than 40 grand a year and do it. But I know people that, that invest who, who had jobs like minimum wage jobs or like slightly above minimum wage. And they started buying rental properties and eventually they quit those jobs and just do real estate full time. So totally possible. Uh, have you ever got burned lending? How do you make sure you don't get burned? Yes. I've been burned lending. Um, and it hurts. I was burned actually by a family member. That's the worst part. Uh, we didn't properly, I didn't do it properly. I didn't properly secure. And, um, the challenge of having to go after them in court, I may end up having to, but hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Um, They've been delinquent now for more than a year. So it's something that I have to think about and it's tough because it's a family thing. So that was a mistake on my end. I lent out a six-figure sum and that was a mistake. But yeah, I mean, with lending, the biggest thing to do is to make sure you dot your I's, cross your T's and dot your I's. So you gotta secure, you gotta make sure that you do your homework on the person you're lending to. Do your homework on the properties you're lending against. Don't get weak just because they're friends, just because they're family. In fact, probably avoid lending to family. That's the smartest thing you can do is to avoid lending to family, period. Then when you have to go after them in court, it's not a big emotional thing at Christmas, right? Like the whole family gets involved, right? And so there's a lot of emotional pieces that come into it. And part of that loss for me is emotional, right? There's a reason I haven't gotten the capital back yet. Um, yeah. yeah, I regret lending to family. That was a mistake. Yeah, I've been burned unfortunately six-figure loss next question is any recommendations for the percentage on the down payment for a rental property Um, well 20% down avoids any fees associated with private mortgage insurance so you save four or five percent of the purchase price in a fee versus putting five percent down so i've done videos on that specifically a ton and just want to know your thoughts on managing risk if a person stops paying rent here in Ontario, there's not a ton you can do. Um, you have to serve them an N4 and then take them to court. It's painful, just the way that it is. Um, yeah, they, they don't pay rent. You have to take them to the landlord or tenant board. It takes like six months to get them out. You probably never get paid. You might have to go to small claims court. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's why I like Airbnb. It's why I like short-term rentals. Because guess what? They don't pay, I bill their credit card. They damage the house, I bill their credit card. So short-term rental, much preferred to long-term. I've never had any issues with students. Interestingly, I've never had a student not pay me rent. Yeah, I think I can say that confidently. And I've had hundreds of students over the years. Almost all. I had one situation where I had to go after their parents, and their parents paid me without going to court. Um, so yeah, I haven't had a lot of issues with students. I haven't had a lot of issues with delinquency on Airbnb because it's prepaid on credit card. Uh, but yeah, with long-term tenants, it's a shame. Like when you're serv- if you end up buying properties that are in the C or D class. Space and you're servicing those people who are at the bottom of society, like they're struggling on, you know, they're on like ODSP or Ontario Works, and they have substance abuse issues and mental illness. It's tough because collecting that rent means, like, give me the bad guy, right? And in, in some ways, like, they've agreed to a contract to pay a certain amount of rent and they should honor that. They shouldn't have an entitlement to, you know, property they're not paying for, but yeah, it's really tough. Like, that part of landlording, I want nothing to do with anymore. There was a time where I would you know, for extra cash on cash return, I would take on those types of properties and those types of tenants, no longer. Like full stop, not interested. Um, but yeah, yeah, the people who do, and for the landlords who still do, I, I feel for you guys, you know, struggling to collect rent. And it's, you know, when they're choosing between food and, and rent, that's tough. Um, in an ideal world, you just don't have any tenants uh, in those types of properties. You focus on the luxury market and you won't have those issues. In this at the same rate of percentage you go short-term rental you won't have those issues you always get paid and so that's something that's nice about the student rental market about airbnb you know the short-term rental market it has its own challenges too though next question is hey i've read 280 million dollar mansion in the usa how much does your dream mansion that you mentioned as a goal cost what is your dream location I don't know, like I love Canada and you know, I have family here and I have roots deep in London. So probably somewhere, you know, like my long-term dream would be to have a piece of land that backs onto the river or a piece of, you know, a bit of water Um, sprawling privacy. Like if neighbors can see me when they're driving by, not interested, gotta have that privacy seclusion. You drive up your driveway and there's a nice big property there Um, just for like enjoying myself and having that privacy. For me, privacy is a big thing. And so that's, that's the biggest piece of, of it. Like I don't want those Beverly Hills properties where you, like all the neighbors can see you. That would be terrible. That those were zero to me. Um, or like a big fancy property in the city worth zero to me. I don't want to see neighbors. I don't want to have that. I want that seclusion, I want that privacy, especially because I do a lot of public stuff on YouTube. I have had people drive by my house and like call out my name and stuff, weird stuff. Like, especially at my last house, it just, it's a problem being a public figure and not having that privacy. Um, it's a shame. I'm a public figure that doesn't make any money because YouTube pays me nothing. Um, but yeah, take all the, all the risk and expose myself to the world. Only it seems to come back and bite me in the ass. All this online uh, presence that I have. You know, tenants have used it against me. People just like, like to latch on and attack, right? But I like to hope and believe that this time that I'm giving to people for free is benefiting thousands of people. And so that's why I continue to do it because it doesn't pay much, much of anything. I think I make like five bucks for this stream. I might make five bucks on average. Um, from YouTube from the, this video. And so $5 an hour is like there's nothing I do for $5 an hour except this. Um, it's like this is like my my charity. Um, but yeah, I guess Dream Mansion, probably like three million bucks. I think for three million dollars I could build a nice eight thousand, nine thousand square foot um, dream property with a like huge vaulted ceilings, you know, the inside, four seasons pool and hot tub connected into the house and everything that I'd want, I, I could definitely get that for about 3 million bucks. Now that would be stretching for me. Like to, to get into a property like that, I'd be house poor. And it's not really something I want to, I could still be fired, but I, I wouldn't, wouldn't really want to um, put myself in that position. So I still look because, you know, it's, it keeps me motivated. keeps me growing and has me you know working towards something. But yeah. Let's see here. How many years or months does a person need to receive lending for real estate? Uh, It depends on the lender. So most lenders look for six months to a year minimum in a full-time T4 job. They prefer a year plus. Private lenders might use less. You definitely can't be on probation. So three to six months is usually a probation period. Uh, Okay. Brent says turn losses on lending to friends and family into spiritual victory. Forgive completely, never mention it again. Make a goal of succeeding in spite of the loss and recouping it and growing beyond it. Brent, yeah, it's tough. It is tough um, when family takes that from you and, um, and they could pay you back but don't. Or you know, they've had opportunities to, but, but haven't for you know, their own personal reasons. And everyone has their own struggles and their own reasons why they don't do things, right? Um, yeah, it's a tough one. I haven't, re- I haven't fully um, walked away or written it off yet, but I know if I do two or three more deals, let's say I lost, and I'm not gonna say how much I lost, but it was in the six figures, like four good deals three good deals and I can make that money back right so it's like a few months of my life to make that back and so I just like to believe that that money went to helping and that's all I can do and it's all you can do uh Henry says I just graduated college I'm living a frugal lifestyle and saving when do you think one should take their first step into the real estate world Henry when you're ready and you've got a down payment saved up and you've looked at 100 properties then it's time to start putting offers in I think and then once you put in you know, 10 or 20 offers, then it's time to get into a property. But it's a slow journey and a slow process. You shouldn't rush into things when you're not financially ready, when you're not mentally ready and you haven't you know, got the education and the knowledge first. But you could do all that in a month or two months time, right? So it could be closer than you might think. All right, everyone, that's the last question. We're going to end the live stream today for the Mike Art Show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. What is the secret to unlocking a wealth through you? Three levers: you gotta spend less, you gotta earn more, and you gotta maximize the returns. That's it, guys. Those are the strategies to build wealth: spend less, earn more, maximize returns on the difference. Have a good Wednesday, everyone, and we'll see you next week. And i will see you on Instagram at Mike Heart. Thanks, everyone.